It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Hello, everyone. Last summer, I got an email from a friend saying that he'd like to introduce me to a woman who shares my passion for feminism and honest conversations. She had recently started a blog highlighting various feminist topics, and our friend said that we had a lot in common. Little did we know back then that Katie Baskerville would join Women of My Generation and share all her insights and experiences of womanhood. Today, Katie writes for magazines such as Cosmopolitan, The Flock, Metro and The Stylist. She doesn't shy away from sharing her deepest thoughts and talks about how it is living with PCOS, about female pleasure and abusive relationships. Apart from all of this, we also talk about bi-visibility, imposter syndrome and bulimia in this episode. I'm amazed by Katie's wisdom and how she has managed to survive various battles. If you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did, please share it with someone who may benefit from hearing it as well. The music you're about to hear is by the wonderful Tilda Alley. My name is Fanny Beckman and this is Women of My Generation. How are you today? I am fab. Thank you so much for asking. I have been so excited for this. So yeah, really thrilled. Yeah, I'm so excited as well because we've never really met before. We've only followed each other on Instagram, uh, but we have a lot in common. Um, So yeah, I'm super excited to talk to you and hear all about who you are and what you do. Perfect. So um, obviously know that you're a freelance writer and you write articles about various different feminist topics. So you've written uh, articles about female pleasure, how it is to live with PCOS, and how coming from a working class background affects your sex safety as well. 
Um, so yeah, we have a lot to talk about today. And uh, But first of all, I just want to hear a bit more about your background, how you started, uh, when you started to write, and it, if you've always written about uh, equality or how, how it all started, basically. For sure. So I learned about feminism through my art education. I left school at 15. Um, I didn't really enjoy the way that school operated. I thought it was really, um, not for me, it was not my learning style. I have dyslexia, dyscalculia, and um, it just wasn't for me. Even though I thrived in English and I thrived in art, it made more sense for me to go to art school and art schools where I really started to understand critical thinking and being able to read between the lines and develop concepts. And from there on, I just went straight into my uh, degree, which was in illustration, which I had a blast. Um, And again, very strong educational background in narrative, being able to pull apart um, really difficult concepts and make them very palatable and easy to understand through drawing, but also through writing as part of that. And then in my master's, I studied uh, fine art um, and then did some traveling. I lived in Berlin for a short period. It was amazing. Yeah, I was very, very lucky um, to have been (laughs) awarded the grant to do that. And I worked with the Center for Substructured Loss, which is a Canadian-based art organization that specifically look at the way we handle loss and bereavement and how that translates into creativity. Um, And I wrote my own little magazine to go alongside that as well. And then found myself swept into the world of um, marketing, funnily enough, but that's how these things go, and had had a long career in events. And I burnt out. I really burnt out. Um, If anyone has ever worked in events, they'll know how absolutely exhausting it can be. The hours are long and it's not very rewarding um, if you're if you're tired all the time, um, you're looking at 70 hour weeks plus. So yeah, I reached a point in uh, late 2019 where I was quite senior. I was working for a really well-known art organization um, and I just burnt out. I had uh, come to the end of a 70 plus hour work week and sadly uh, I miscarried at my desk um, which was one of the most harrowing things I think I've ever gone through in my life Uh, partly because I didn't know I was pregnant but also because I hadn't quite realized how stressed I'd let my body get for something like that to happen Um, and I went home uh, it took two hours to get across city to get home but it uh yeah, it, it really affect it really affected me because from that point on I just couldn't I couldn't fall back in love with where I'd found myself. Um How old were you at that point? I was twenty eight. So mm. I'm twenty nine turning thirty in the November, but I think I was twenty seven, twenty eight at the time. Um and 
it yeah it just it floored me and what I what I really learned was I need to change something this isn't the way I want to live my life whether I want children or not I never want to have to experience this again so I took some time off I think I took four months off which I was very lucky to be able to do with the um, support I had from HR but also just uh, my partner as well and we uh yeah we took some big time out and I went back to the drawing board I was like what do I love what do I really love to do I hadn't drawn in ages I hadn't created anything in such a long time and uh the first part of my kind of writing career stemmed from when I was about 23 or 24 years old I started writing for an independent magazine which I absolutely loved it was eclectic and silly and I could I really got to flex my muscles um I've got a lot a lot of love for uh independent magazines I think they're a great space not just for young writers but for um difficult topics to get um the space that they need to you know, to be aired as a lot of larger publications have different sort of strategies and goals. So it can be difficult to get those really hard topics out there. Not that I was covering those kinds of topics in as much detail back then. (laughs) I really was just learning. Um, But sadly, I stopped um, because I was confronted by someone who I felt was my friend. um, And she told me that I was no writer and really yeah and it was devastating um so someone I really respected someone who I really wanted to like me who I um who yeah who I who I essentially who I looked up to and their their words really cut me and that's why I carried on my path with art and left writing behind but I mean these come these things come in full circle and you know it it took me a long time to kind of get over that um, I I don't even know what you would call it. Not a betrayal. I feel like that's too heavy a word. But it was definitely it was definitely a jibe that hit me right in my um in my stomach. So yeah, but yeah. So in a roundabout way, that's it. I uh, I stopped writing. I carried on with art. I worked my way into a senior position and um had some trauma left and rediscovered writing in a really exciting way so I started a blog I started writing about things um full of spelling mistakes grammatical errors it was you know it was not pretty and it was not very good but it was a start and from there I've really been able to hone those skills and um yeah and now and now I'm writing for some really fantastic publications I'm just so proud of myself but also um yeah, actually, I'm just really proud of myself. I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. <laughs> no, no, you shouldn't. You should be very, very proud of yourself. And also thinking that all this has happened within like two years or something. Yeah, I mean, I started pitching for work um, seriously in, uh, gosh, September, August, maybe last year. Um, that's crazy yeah so this I've been I was writing I started my blog actually on the 15th of June 2020 and it quickly became redundant because the stories that I wanted to tell people wanted to buy them um, which is great because it means that they get read by a wider audience Um, I get paid for my work which is super important but also yeah there's there's nothing quite as rewarding as having someone from school or even a stranger that you've never met before message you and say thank you so much I've been seen by what you've written that's an incredibly humbling and 
yeah, it's 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 something I never thought I would be able to do. I, something I thought I didn't have the capacity for. So I'm I'm very pleased that even though I'm still at I would say an early part of my journey into journalism and as a writer, at least at least I've been able to um, make some people feel seen in a space where they might not have originally. Yeah, definitely. It's very inspiring to hear this and especially what you said, like you didn't think that you had the capacity to do it. I feel like especially as women, we you know suffer from imposter syndrome, but also other people coming from the outside saying that uh, creative, the creative industry can't really make money from it and it's too hard, so don't even try. So we need stories like yours that you you know you can actually do it and within such a short amount of time, you just have to take the leap and be brave enough to try it. So absolutely, I mean, I think with imposter syndrome, it's it does affect women more than men statistically it just does and we really do need to look at why that is I mean I used to suffer terribly with imposter syndrome and it it would it would pull me back from jobs it would stop me from achieving because I would constantly be anxious about making a mistake because you always feel like your job is on the line if you make a mistake you're easy to pick apart or yeah so and imposter syndrome is actually something I used to write about a lot on my blog it's what I started writing about because this imposter syndrome for me had come from this one person who I who I felt was my friend but also from from years I think of social conditioning of being like well you know if someone I really cared and admired thought that about me then it must be true if someone Mm. you know if if my employers keep pulling me up on the same mistake then I must be no good and it's it's not the case and at the end of the day those things really don't matter and I think I've got my partner really to thank for helping me with that because you know he's got such a great attitude to um if you don't ask you don't get so just ask so the worst thing they can do is say no then you can deal with that at least you know what the situation is so yeah imposter syndrome sucks (laughs) yeah it really does and I've had so many conversations with my friends about like the fear of failing as well like the people don't even try to do it because they think that they won't succeed at all but yeah I totally agree you have to ask you have to ask for it absolutely Um, and ask for it from yourself as well because ultimately it's only you who is going to be able to give you the thing that you want you may need someone else to open a door you may need someone else to maybe guide you but ultimately before you even begin that work you need to give yourself permission to want something that you think is above your station yeah that's and that's such a difficult thing to ask for if you don't believe you're worthy of that and worth is yeah worth is tied up into a lot of a lot of really difficult stuff around femininity being a woman um especially an lgbtq woman that makes it different again so um there's even more things to to have to mitigate against that are so without outside of your control and outside of your barriers yeah definitely I mean speaking of one term that you uh, raise on your social media and in your articles is by visibility Mm -hmm. um I think a lot of people already know uh what it means just listening to it but with your own words would you uh, be able to describe Uh, what it means to you and why it's so important to talk about absolutely um so for context I grew up in uh sort of like a disused slate quarry village 
in North Wales. Um, so there was really not much going on, except for the stunning scenery, which isn't that interesting when you're 14 or 15. It really isn't. Sadly, <laughs> should have been, wasn't. Um, and I hate to say it, but, and I hate to speak ill of where I come from, but it, we, you know, we have to acknowledge that in the back countries, in the in the small villages where people stay their entire lives and they don't have the opportunity to experience diversity or different, just different things, different languages, different cultures, different people, different walks of life, different jobs, um, they end up with the same prejudices. And for me, growing up as a bisexual person, um, I always felt that that was a very deviant thing to be because there was this uh, associated promiscuity or fetishization, sexualization. So I decided very quickly um, that that wasn't for me. And even though that's how I always felt, I kept it to myself for years and years and years because the girls that were brave enough I don't even want to call it brave because you shouldn't have to be brave, but in these situations, they were brave enough to be themselves. Mm. They were constantly sexualized by the men in our friendship circles or, you know, oh, it would be, have you heard so-and-so's with so-and-so? I'd love to see that. And I just couldn't bear the thought of anybody ever talking about my personal life like that because I thought... Well, actually, no, maybe they would have said that about me, even though if I was with men. So it just became a very incredibly difficult thing to acknowledge in myself. Although this weekend, I actually met up with a friend of mine. She's been one of my best friends since we were, gosh, I don't know, uh, about six years old. Um, yeah, really, really okay. long-standing, long-suffering best friend. Um, and we were talking about sexuality because another friend of ours had said that she thought she'd had feelings for a girl but didn't feel as though she was bisexual and I was like well that's okay um and we got onto the topic of how long I'd felt like I was bisexual and it was actually her that pointed out she was like I remember as being very small and you telling me that you didn't care if you fell in love with a boy or a girl and you know that really stuck with me and I was like gosh I don't even remember that um but the point of the matter is without the representation of normality I associated that part of myself with being, you know, and wrongfully this, and this terminology is so outdated anyway, but slutty or easy or promiscuous. And because I'd had some run-ins with uh, men um, that had not been healthy or kind or even consensual, that I didn't want it to happen again. And I did, I certainly didn't want those moments to those moments I would have with women or girls or people I liked that were women, um, I didn't want those to then put me in harm's way. If a man thought I was happy to sleep with a woman, then why wouldn't I sleep with them? And mm. yeah, you know, with that, yeah. And I think that's a wider thing as well. Like people need to see bisexuality as just another normal thing. It's not, you know, we're not all out here having orgies. Some of us are but that's okay. And that's not a bad thing. Like, I don't understand why everybody gets so upset about mm. sex and non-monogamy or monogamy. Like, it's just a choice. And although bisexuality isn't a choice, it's important to remember that 
that they're just like we're just people like it's it's no different and there's no space for us sometimes I feel in the in the gay community or in the straight community this kind of monosexualization that we that we grow up with with having still a very sort of secular um unit around one partner and one partner the idea of that you could have one partner that is one gender but you might also like another one that is another or or however that person identifies I think it throws off what we've been taught in society and that's obviously not a comfortable situ- uh, conversation to have with many people but yeah for me by representation is everything by visibility is everything and acknowledging that people with bisexuality are not here to service your fetish yeah 100% that's re- yeah really really important that you say that as well and it's interesting what you said that um in you know in media there's either you're homosexual or heterosexual and there's nothing in between but then there are all of us like who are very much in between um and it's you know we're stepping into pride month now um so it's really really important to to raise this as well and like you said representation and a lot of people still seem to think that saying that you're bi is just um an excuse because you're too scared of saying that you're you're gay um but it's actually a sexuality on its own precisely Um, and i i think you know i feel very lucky to be bisexual um i wish i'd have had the confidence to have stepped into that identity for myself much much earlier in my life and i understand that you know there is a heteronormativity around bisexuality there is an element of choice with who you can be with not always but there is depending on how you how you see your preference or depending on who you're attracted to or who who you end up falling in love with or developing connections for i can understand that there is a resentment to be able to hide something that can be used against you as a prejudice and i recognize that as a privilege you know i was able to hide a part of myself that i knew would have been criticized or i would have been made fun of or bullied for or hurt for for a very 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 long time um and that's a privilege because gay people don't get that you know even though I'm part of the community I recognize that and I don't know if this is I'm still a baby gay I like to call it but like I I still (laughs) I like I do think that I you know it is important to recognize that it, it it's a it's a very very different struggle no matter how you identify but it doesn't mean that it's any lesser or any more. It's just different. And it's a different a different set of boundaries for the privilege that you have. And I know that for me, hiding might have seemed like a privilege. But for anyone who's never come out before, they'll know that it's not. No, 100%. And it goes back to, like, I feel like the past year we talked a lot about intersectionality. And it's all, you know, linked. And it, it's, it just blows my mind that, you know, people call themselves feminists without having these kind of conversations or being aware of everything that goes into it and you know that you can be a woman but then on top of that like you said yourself you have other struggles as well Uh, so either that be coming from the lgbtq plus community or uh, you know being non-white and you know everything that comes with that it's um it's really really important to raise all of this so thank you for writing so openly about it as well like in different articles and on your social media it's really good I mean it's it's absolutely my pleasure um it's a it's an absolute honor to be able to to do those kinds of things I think I I just wish that more there was more I mean 
I get a lot of uh, rejections on articles that I pitch about bisexuality because maybe a publication has already covered that in the last three or four years, but they'll only have maybe five or six articles. Last three or four years. Yeah, and you know, and it's you know, it's 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 not my place to criticize that. I'm not I'm not holding the purse strings for those people, but I do think it's interesting that bisexuality isn't given as much of a airwave space um sometimes I think it's considered like a bit of a nothing sexuality but I think I can't I can't speak for bisexual men or bisexual non-binary people but I can speak for my own experience as a bisexual woman and that is that it's no fun being a bisexual woman if you don't have a community to support you and I didn't find my bisexual community until oh god maybe like five months ago really not that long um and it was so validating to be around people that felt the same way as me and that could talk about the culture because what is bi culture you know if you if you ask someone what is bisexual culture then that it's like oh well I don't know until you until you get with a group of bisexual people and they go oh well it's this 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 and this and Mm -hmm. and I think that's such a shame as well that there isn't an opportunity to learn more about that although maybe I'm grateful because then it doesn't get commodified (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's a fine line isn't it absolutely but it goes back to what you said like the importance of representation in in general uh, and um because otherwise if you don't see yourself or um hear yourself represented anyway uh anywhere then it's really hard to to you know to acknowledge your own identity and find your own identity and it just makes you so bloody miserable like when you don't Mm. know who you are and I I, you know you never really get you never stop learning who you are really but I do think it's 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 one of those things where you don't have access to all your superpowers yet and maybe that's a bit cheesy or corny to say it in that way but or in those terms but I do think yeah like we need to have access to every part of ourselves to be able to fully step into who we are and if we are holding parts of ourselves back then we're we we tend to you know experience more um mental health problems we become higher risk we are isolated we you know I know for me I I suffer terribly with anxiety I still do um not quite as bad as I used to but um for many years I would collapse in stock rooms or you know I I fainted once at a friend's house because I dropped her phone and it smashed and I just felt so awful that I went to the bathroom and fainted um and yeah and I you know I've suffered with uh depressive episodes and it's it's not all fun and games but since being able to have a lot of therapy and work on myself and being able to articulate and I think writing is very much a part of that being able to talk about the struggle that not only I face but also if I am facing it I am never facing anything alone even though I might be solitary Mm. in that moment there will be hundreds and thousands of other people going through exactly the same thing the world is too big for you to be unique so it's good to talk it's good to tell your story it's good to write it down even if you're not a writer to be able to articulate how you feel, why you feel that way, and really examine the emotion in in detail. It helped me massively unpick a lot of the damage that was that was done when I was younger. Mm. 
Yeah, I can definitely see that. And it makes me think of one of the articles that I read by you, where you talk a lot about negging, mm. which is a term that I've never heard before. <laughs> and uh, thank you for educating me around that. But it's, again, it's you write about something that is so, so common, but people haven't really um, been able to put words into it before. Um, so for anyone like me who haven't heard about this term before, could you just explain what it is and and what happened to yeah, you? Yeah, for sure. So negging is actually really gross. Um, and it doesn't necessarily just happen in romantic relationships. It happens in, it can happen in family dynamics. It can happen in friendship groups. It can happen in, in all sorts of different situations. But it's, uh, it's actually, I think the first time I heard it was in that God awful book about pickup artistry and a way to it's a it's it's a conscious way of making um making someone feel bad about themselves while making you look like a good person so you become more vulnerable it's a form of abuse essentially so an example for that might be um I don't know let's say you've got really dressed up you feel really gorgeous and uh whoever you're with uh, maybe a partner says to you Oh, that dress. Um, that dress looks good. Your 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 legs. Your legs look a bit big though, but everything else is perfect. And it's that one little jibe that sticks with you because you can't help but not hear anything else, right? And then it's the idea that if you call out that behavior, if you say to someone, "Well, actually, I don't. I don't like that you said that my legs look big. I don't think that was very called for." Well, I'm just being honest. Do you want me to lie to you? Oh God. And that's a very different, I've been in relationships, sadly, and many other people have, um, where that is commonplace, where you're made to feel um, a bit, a bit mental. um, And that's probably not the correct term to use, but it is how you feel. You feel like you're losing your mind. If someone is constantly complimenting you, but you feel bad about those compliments. And then when you... It's so manipulative incredibly incredibly manipulative and it's it's so commonplace and we don't talk about this kind of um and I don't like the idea that it's low-key abuse it's just abuse um yeah, 100%. Uh, you know there's no such thing as oh you know it's not that bad it's not like I hate that it's not like they hit me um mm. they do they're sucker punching your brain like don't yeah. don't you know don't deny the truth here like it's bad um mm. And, you know, and a lot of the time, these are really narcissistic personality traits as well. So you do have to look and, and catch yourself and think, OK, is where's the where's the base level here? Where's where's the reality of the situation? Where's the logic? And how do I get back to that place? Because if you can't find the ground, then you get stuck in the wave and you just end up tumbling and tumbling and tumbling, trying to trying to find somewhere to stand up, basically, while you're drowning. And that's the best way I can describe getting stuck into a relationship that's like that. Because if someone is constantly telling you nice things about yourself and you feel bad, then there's a problem. And it might not be your self-esteem. Yeah, 100%. I used to volunteer at the women's shelter back in Sweden. And uh, we always talk about five different types of abuse. So there's a physical, uh, emotional, sexual, uh, material and financial abuse. But Mm. like... We don't even talk that much about abuse in general, but if we do, it's all always the physical one. Uh, but then there's yeah. no abuse without the, you know, the controlling or the emotional side of it at all. So it's very much uh, ab- an abusive behavior the way you describe it. 
Um, Absolutely, it, and it is. It's it's a it's a way of putting a victim in a situation where they have very little control over their own behaviour, or you know, you, you're you're setting uh, unreasonable expectations for their behaviour. So the boundary line is is completely unreasonable. So it are uh, you know, um, there have been situations where. I think uh, I can speak about this. It's a friend of mine. I won't I won't name her by name, obviously, but she experienced it when we were in school um, where, you know, you're all in a school uniform. You all look exactly the same. And she would be constantly told by her partner, who are you trying to impress? It's like, well, one, you're 15, nobody. Mm. And apart from your mates or maybe like someone, someone a bit nice in the year above, like, no, you know, you're not, you're not looking, you're not looking for a sugar daddy or anything. And, (laughs) and, and he would constantly barrage her with messages like that and be like, you can't go out like that. Why have you got your chest out? You know, you're so beautiful. Uh, You know, I stop that. And this is another one that I think happens quite a lot in relationships. It's, I trust you. I just don't trust other people. Mm. And it's like, well, what does that even mean? You think that if somebody comes up to you and tries to seduce you, your 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 partner, that you trust them not to do anything, but you don't trust the other person, and then you still find blame in your partner for that. Yeah, taking what's the place. problem then? <laughs> precisely, precisely. And it's just a way of being like, I trust you, but I don't trust other people. Don't give other people an opportunity to flirt with you just in case. And flirting is part of, of normal life. I flirt with my friends. I flirt with my boyfriend. I flirt with, you know, everyone. It's a nice thing to do. It's nice to feel titillated and it doesn't have to lead anywhere it's not emotional cheating it's just it's just a nice thing to do and it's completely harmless but like in that article you also mentioned um your working class background um in terms of uh, negging could you just explain that as well how that has affected yeah yeah happily I think when you grow up um working class and as I say I grew up in the back end of of North Wales um and my mum looked after me the most. My dad worked away. And then after their divorce, it was just me and my mum for a really long time. Um, and, you know, we had, we you grow up with everything. That you, I think this is a thing with working class people. They grow up not wanting for everything, but not having everything that they should have. And it's a very humbling, um, a very humbling experience. You really, you don't want anything more than what you need to get by. And with that comes this need to um not self-deprecate but also be like well I don't need that I don't need more than my lot I can get by and it's this need for like self-sufficiency and I think that when you enter a situation where someone is negging that comes back up quite a lot where you'll you'll think well actually you know I yeah maybe maybe you know maybe they're right maybe I don't need to wear this much makeup why am I why am I doing that? Why am I trying to impress other people? Yeah, I don't I don't need to do I should be happy with what I've got. And it's this weird internal monologue that I think that that happens quite a lot. And then that infiltrates your, you know, your vulnerability to uh, exploitation, abuse, coercion. Um, I, you know, I entered my first sexual relationship when I was 13. Um, that was way too young. And my, although I was very annoyed at the time, my mum had every right to fly off the handle at what was going on. And it affected me deeply because it set the tone. And a lot of working class girls, you know, they, they, they do end up in, I think it's the British Medical 
journal um, who published the findings um, that working class girls specifically under the age of consent do not have sexual competence but find themselves in sexual relationships before they're ready and the result of that then is an a lifelong vulnerability to abuse to coercion to to all sorts of different things and I know that for me that was the case um until I met my partner now and I'm I'm almost 30 and I started my sexual journey when with other people when I was 13 and that's a really long time to get caught in cycles of abuse and unless you have the opportunity to examine those circles or if you have the strength and capacity and you know the finances let's talk about that some people don't have the finances to be able to examine their mental health in the right way or exact or, or have intervention by someone else you know and I was in relationships then from that point on that all had elements of abuse be that sexual be that uh controlling be that uh negging be that anything it was you know there is that when I when I look back to that period of my life and I think about some of the things that I would allow and put up with I remember uh the partner I had before I was I was with my my boyfriend now um I had uh, a tumor growing in my lymph node in my neck okay and um I came out of hospital after having it removed uh, we were waiting for the results to, to find out if it was cancerous or not. So it was a very scary time. I was only 25, I think. Baby girl. Baby girl. Didn't, <laughs> so, you know. Um, and he had me ironing his shirts to go on nights out two days after post-op. Didn't even come and pick me up from the gate because he didn't want to pay for the bloody car park. No way. Yeah, yeah. He had me walking across the car park in the Heath in Cardiff. Like, honestly, absolute waste of space. But looking back on it now I can see how I got to that point where I thought that was acceptable and that was um you know they wouldn't sleep with me they would be out all hours of the day there was drug abuse in the relationship there was a lot of things wrong a lot a lot of things wrong and sadly you know it was someone who I cared about very much and there was an element of sexual abuse in that relationship as well and it it it, he was (laughs) he didn't hit me so it was I fell into that category of of, of rationalising someone else's behaviour because at least it hadn't got to physical. Because I think a lot of the time, especially for working class women, I, I can't speak for, for people in other class other classes, but I think for working class women we associate domestic violence as the final straw. Yeah. Because we're so strong willed, we are so strong headed, we are, you know, we can do anything, we carry the burdens, we do it all, we you know ask anyone and then the minute someone lays a hand on you well that's it that's Mm. the final straw but actually there's a lot that leads up to the point where that can happen and my partner before him had you know he'd dragged me through broken glass he had you know punched walls by the side of my head so there's there's you know and I can speak honestly and candidly about this now because we're out the other side and I'm very happy and life is good for the most part obviously last year was a bit mad but Mm. you get through these things if you decide you're worth better and not just that that's unfair because it's it's not just about deciding that you're worth more than what you've got but it's definitely it's definitely a part of that you need you need to see yourself the way your best friend sees you 
because they will always see you how you are. My mum gave me the best advice and it has stayed with me my entire life. Your friends are always a reflection of who you are, but your boyfriends have always been a reflection on how you see yourself. And I think, I know she's a wise old, she's a wise old woman now, but, um, it was it was really really true and i i didn't feel like i deserved anything more than what i was getting so yeah i mean yeah it's so so common unfortunately but i'm so happy to see that you got out of that and see you here like sitting and smiling and because you know it's one of the most or if not the most dangerous situation a woman can be in is actually when um, we decide to leave such relationship because so many people will just ask um, victims of domestic abuse why don't you just leave because it's it's actually really dangerous and can be really dangerous uh, and also it's again part of your identity and if someone has told you over and over again that you're useless and you don't deserve anyone but me or stuff like that then you know, it's really hard to leave. So it's incredible that you managed to do it. I was, in a way, I was very lucky that um, he was such a sleazeball because he actually ran off with my boss. Um, oh. Yeah, I mean, actually, thank you for doing that. I mean, bad for her, but not for me because imagine imagine if he'd have wanted to stay with me. Mm. Imagine how bad it would have got if it was already that bad. And we yeah. were we were together what two years? So it wasn't even that long, and it had escalated mm. to chair throwing. You're you're mental. You're you're crazy. You're just like so and so. Yeah, I remember once I'd asked to go home early, um, and he literally screamed at me in a taxi all the way home that I didn't let him live his life. And even the taxi driver was like, are you okay? And by that point, I was like, yes, I'm fine. This is just a normal night. And it's sad that it gets to that point where it becomes a normality. It's incredibly frightening when your normality is... um, And that's where I also learned about um, different types of responses. Because I always thought, well, if I'm ever in a situation like that, I'll kick, I'll scream, I'll fight, I'll bite, I'll, you know, pull hair, I'll do whatever I can. But actually, I didn't. And I was very still and I was very calm and I was very collected. And I, you know, I I remember being very present in the situation while I was watching this fella just completely, like, lose it and like spiral in his anger but I was like if I make a single move he is going to hit me I am so frightened so I'm not going to move and I actually I feel like I turned into like I don't know if you've heard the terminology but like petulant child no I haven't so like it's a it's a a form of regression that we go into um there's many different types of like we can go into like the parenting role and I actually went into the petulant child role and I don't know if you remember ever getting told off at school but you'd like sit on your hip out and you just like look at someone and be angry and like that's all I could do was just like that was my defense mechanism to make it feel like it wasn't bothering me because if it was bothering me I didn't know how far it was going to get and that is not a good advice by the way that's not what you should do um at the first sign of any sort of coercive negging or any sort of behavior like that your best bet before it does escalate because there's only one way it goes there's only ever one direction that 
those types of relationships go in and it's to leave immediately Mm -hmm. um it is difficult to leave it's difficult to be alone especially if your mental health isn't in a very good space or if you don't have a good support system around you but the long the long run is if you stay you die so so don't no but I was just wondering how has all of this affected your body image obviously it's affected your self-esteem but uh, I know you like you write very openly about um, your relationship with your body and uh, how your relationship was with food when you were growing up so has is, is this all linked absolutely I mean for me my my relationship with food has always been one of control there were very many things going on in my life growing up that were so out of my control or that I didn't understand I didn't have the capacity to be able to make sense of articulate uh reason with um or fight against so I think my relationship with food was how I made sense of the pain and also how I made sense of the lack of control. Um, I had believe I, I mean, you never really stop having an eating disorder. It stays with you your whole life, even if you're in recovery. Recovery isn't a destination-based place where everything is sunshine mm. and perfect and you never feel guilty about food again. You're just, I like to think of it as when you're in recovery from an eating disorder, all you are is the better negotiator because you are constantly negotiating with the voice that keeps telling you the impulses that are there there's no I've never met anyone in my community um that has ever suffered from any sort of disordered eating or eating disorder however diagnosed that has not felt or created space for relapse and that negotiation that takes place but growing up it was tough um there was a lot of there was a lot of disruption between my mum and my dad and their their households and 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 other such things that was that were just a bit unpleasant and i was in many ways left to my own devices because of the arguments that they were having um between themselves about everything um so i stepped into a lot of trauma but there really wasn't anywhere that felt completely safe for me to go so I was very quick to leave home because I was like well at least then I can you know I can live life on my own terms so university was my escape university was the place that I was going to go to so that I could have enough money to leave home because I'd get a grant uh and I would be able to be an artist I had a I had a fantasy in my head about how my life was going to be and being very young and naive uh that fantasy led me into some um pretty sticky situations and as the trauma accumulated the need to control accumulated and also so did the self-loathing so did the you know the self-hatred the self-blame the self-esteem um took massive plunges and the only way I really knew how to mitigate that was was with controlling what I ate or not eat as the case often was um and that started from when I was about 13 or 14 so around the time of my first sexual experience all the way through until about 26 years old which is a quite a while quite a long time um it's a really long time yeah and I think the only reason why I was never hospitalized was because my weight never dipped into uh the death area <laughs> basically and my you know my mum is very petite she's very small naturally 
and my dad is very small and petite naturally so for me to be small and petite it wasn't a big deal it was just oh well she's just Mm -hmm. like a mum and dad when actually naturally I'm not I'm not very I'm not that small I had to work very hard at being small because of my PCOS and um and yeah I it was the behavior around it as well that I think I remember having a conversation with my mum years she's like well I always thought there was something wrong I always thought you were going to throw up I always I always knew that something like that was going on and then I remember thinking, well, why didn't why didn't you intervene? But then I think, well, I wouldn't have bloody listened anyway. What would you know? I wasn't at death's door, and if it was a coping mechanism that wasn't killing me, she probably thought, well, better to leave her to it. She'll grow out of it. But the sad thing was, it accumulated and accumulated. And when um, uh, my ex left me for my boss, uh, it just sent me into a spiral because I felt like I had been putting up with an absolute world of crap. Um, and to have him leave me was the final straw. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I've put up with all this nonsense and now, and this is the last thing you're going to do. And I lost it. Um, I lost complete control of my eating disorder. I got very, very thin. I was not sleeping, habitually busy, taking laxatives, the whole shebang. And um, there was a moment where my friend actually held an intervention for me and threatened to tell my mum how bad things had gotten uh and that moment freaked me out um but didn't didn't stop me I just hid it better and I can't even tell you how I got out of the situation um I think when I met my next partner I was too embarrassed by having to shoot off to the toilet every sort of 20-30 minutes um because I'd, I'd done quite a lot of damage to my bowels by that point. Um, I didn't, and I was really embarrassed about it. So that stopped me, that stopped some of the behavior. Um, and then it just kind of started to get better because at the beginning, our relationship was really lovely as, you know, as they often are. Um, so yeah, it just kind of pulled me out. It pulled me out of it, but then the anxiety got really bad and and it was, it was just, it's just been a bit of a tumble dryer experience. Um, and then now um I do still you know I'd be lying if I said I didn't still struggle with my body image but I can be honest about it I can say I I don't feel good about myself today and I know that that however I feel is not like it's it's not the real situation um it's just it's it's something else that's speaking for me so I then need to examine okay well if I'm feeling like Mm -hmm. this if I feel like I've lost control if I feel like these compulsions are harder to um sustain then I need to talk to someone I need to go to my doctor but the bad thing is really there isn't much help at the moment uh, for people with eating disorders um I think it's a really tough time especially with the threat of um calorie counting being put on menus and for some people I know that that is going to be a massive help um but I do think you know you need to be sensitive to a population that is consistently advertised to to be better consistently told and marketed that they're never happy until what is enough and enough is never enough because there's no measure there's no end goal for enough um which is why I think many people with eating disorders stay unwell because when is it enough when it when is when is recovery enough am I recovered enough yet maybe not because you expect you expect Mm. to to not feel this way anymore but then why do I feel guilty about not being thin? 
you know? Yeah, exactly. And I think that's why a lot of people aren't diagnosed either, because they think it's normal. Precisely. So a lot of people don't seek help at all. Um, but, you know, bear in mind, I know that you know this as well, like uh, eating disorders are the mental health condition that takes most life out of or mental health yeah. conditions um so it's yeah it's, it's really scary um so again I, th- I feel like we are starting to talk a bit more about it openly I hope um, so I really hope so I yeah. mean we saw it recently with um I don't know if uh if you saw this but with Nikki Graham who used to be a contestant on Big Brother then oh, became yeah. really famous she had anorexia nervosa and was was recovered for years and I say that with inverted commas but she was recovered for years and then obviously very tragically she passed away from the disease years and years and years later and I don't think people really understand how all-consuming it is because it's it's every time you go out even you, you just everything's triggering as well and people take the mick out of oh you're triggered blah 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 but it actually is a really big deal to go out for dinner and feel like you're not present and you can't enjoy yourself and you're thinking about how you look all the time and it may come across as really vain or I don't know convoluted condescending but it it it's the worst feeling in the world to be surrounded by the people you love the most, who love you the most, and all you can think about is how much of a terrible person you are because you had cheese on your chips or whatever it is you yeah. ordered. Mm-hmm. And it completely robs you of some of the most precious memories. Um, and it takes a massive chunk of your life away. And I, I think one of the reasons why I never really, I didn't start my career until much later was because I was far too consumed by my mental health and it took a really really long time for me to get into a place where I could live with it instead Mm. of instead of trying to mask it and move on um yeah because I think that's one of the symptoms isn't it that you hide um or in in terms of bulimia as as well like you binge eat and you go into a separate room or you you tell lies about you'd live in denial as well a lot of yeah people don't know themselves that they're suffering from something um and it's it's, you don't you don't I know I I didn't want to know I didn't want to acknowledge I I just thought well my life's going to hell in a handbasket but at least I'm thin and then I kind of realized how ridiculous that was um and yeah slowly made a recovery and you know it took it took a long time I'm still in a good place which is great I'm under no illusion that I'll be challenged every day for the rest of my life with it but it's it's in a good place right now and that's all I can really ask of myself is to appreciate good days handle the bad days if things get really really dire seek help and like for example beat are a fantastic um charity to go to as well as mind if anyone is suffering or anyone is having a a tough time around disordered eating because you don't have to be at death's door to deserve help no no definitely not it's gone way too far if that's the case um precisely so yeah i think it's good to end with a bit of tips to people and that's like one thing that you uh, i mean i've said you write about various different topics but it seems to be like they all have one thing in common and that is to um encourage uh, especially women and non-binary people to to get a better relationship with their body and it seems like you do that through awareness uh, a lot of the time 
Um, so like if you have one final tips or a few more tips to people listening mm. uh, how they can get a better relationship with their body or how we can help maybe the younger generation I think um, turn off your phones more often mm. um, every third advert on Facebook and Instagram or every third post sorry is an advert you have no control over that Um, so if you have any eating disorder tendencies, if you've ever searched and there's no judgment here, I've done it. I'm not saying you should do it, but if you have, if you've ever searched about how to become anorexic, how to become thin, how to Google will know that it's not Google's fault. It's a machine. It's binary. It just reads the data. But what it means is you're more susceptible then to receive advertisements that are going to make you feel crap about yourself. Get an ad blocker um, and take big breaks away from your phone. And it's not even the people that you follow that may be doing the harm. It, it could literally just be your search history coming back to haunt you. It's not your fault if you've had those thoughts. But if you've had those thoughts, then maybe it's time to think why. I think that's a great, a very hands-on tips that we can all uh, take away from today. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy that we sat down and talked together because, yeah... You've, I've learned a lot and I've said this before it's one of the things that I've really missed through lockdown having these kind of meaningful conversations yeah. so yeah thank you so much for being part of this no I'm really, it, really happy it has been my absolute pleasure and thank you so much for having me on big fan of your work and yeah it it means the world to be given a platform and a space to be able to talk about these things I just want everyone to to wank and be happy at the end of the day <laughs> yeah. so that's all I want <laughs> that sounds perfect to me <laughs> thank you so much again <laughs>